So I'm a bit of a sucker for sports stories. Stories that evoke emotions. Stories of people who overcome difficulties and adversity. Stories that compel you. One of my favorite stories is one that I saw on ESPN when I was in high school. And normally no one in this room would care about who won the South Carolina 4A state basketball tournament. But I think you would if you saw the story that ESPN produced about it. The reason is because of their coach. His name is Lewis Mulkey. He was a basketball coach at Somerville High School in South Carolina. He had gotten married in the summer of 2006. He was 34 years old when his team was getting ready to start the new season. He had coached the team since they were eighth graders. He became like a father to these guys. And some players would say that he was their only father as he cared for them, mentored them, and coached them. He would on occasion do things for his players, like when one of the kids didn't have any money for food to eat, he would take gas money out of his back pocket, which school teachers don't have much of, and give it to the kid to have dinner, and then he would walk home. He loved those kids, and he told them in eighth grade, you know what? You all can make it to the state championship. As a matter of fact, I predict you are going to win the championship your senior year. And we're going to work towards that over the next five years. He told those kids that, and believe me, they never forgot it. And this high school had never gone to the state championship before in South Carolina. Another thing about Lewis Malky, he was also a fireman volunteer fireman, and he served on engine number 15. You may have heard this story, but on June 18, 2007, the worst fire and death of firemen took place in Charleston, South Carolina, since 9-11. There were nine firemen who lost their lives. One of them was Louis Mulkey, the coach. Over the walkie-talkies in the midst of the fire, and when he knew his life was coming, and he simply said to anyone who is listening, and they have a recording of this audio recording, they played it on the ESPN outside the lines, he said, just tell Lauren, my wife, that I love her. So of course, this high school team had a special motivation that year, their senior year. They had been told by their beloved coach, 34-year-old, that they would be state champions. So that year, they had their substitute coach who was filling in, but on the fourth chair from the scores table at every game was a fire helmet. On it was number 15 in the initials LM. The coach was as if he was there, and they played every game for him. So they get into the tournament. They get to the semifinal game of the state championship, and they've fallen behind getting ready to lose and the whole Somerville High School crowd rose to their feet, and they started shouting, Lewis Malky, Lewis Malky, Lewis Malky. And just like out of a scene of a movie, the team turns around and they win the game. They get into the finals, and I'm not going to ruin it for you and tell you who wins the finals. Just kidding, I am. I love ruining things for people. <laughs> so fun. 
It was a very close game. Last second shot, the Somerville High School team wins 50-48. to 48. And of course, Lauren Mulkey, you can see her in the picture. The wife dissolves into tears. She's photographed with the team as the championship team. And on their way home to Charleston that night in the wee hours of the dark morning, they asked the driver to stop by the graveyard and they went to Lewis Mulkey's grave. They took their medals and they left them at the grave and they joined hands and prayed together. Now this is an amazing story. When I, when I saw it, I was moved. It's a true story. You could see the profound motivation that this team had because of what their coach meant to them. What he had done for them. The times that he had given them money and walked home. They were ready to die on the basketball floor before they would give up the game. They treasured their coach. My question for us this morning is what compels you in life? What is the driving force of your life? What is your motivation? I'm not asking what you wish it was, but what actually compels you. For the basketball team at Somerville High School, they were compelled by the life and death of their coach, Louis Malky. For the Christian, they ought to be compelled by the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The message that God saves sinners. The good news of great joy. Our motivation ought to be infinitely greater than that which the Somerville High School team had in their hearts to serve their coach. We ought to be motivated as God's grateful people living faithfully for him. And I want you to see why. We see two primary motives in the Christian life. They're immense and oftentimes overlooked. We see these two motivations in the life of Paul. In the passage that we're going to be looking at today, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there are two paradoxical concepts in many of our minds, for it involves two words that seem to be kind of at odds with each other, fear and love. Before we dive in, I want to give you some background on the book of 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is in kind of this life or death struggle with the church in Corinth for the gospel. The Corinth church rebelled against Paul and his teaching because they were being influenced by these super apostles who were proclaiming a different gospel. They were basically saying, follow Jesus and you will be healthy and wealthy. You will get the desires of your heart. Paul writes this letter to demonstrate their error and to convince them to embrace the true gospel. Paul provides an opportunity to demonstrate the contrast between the gospel and the prevailing cultural story of his day. The false apostles are concerned with external qualifications, but Paul focuses on the internal heart change brought about by the Spirit of God. The false apostles are concerned with making much of themselves and using gimmicks to persuade people Paul is not claiming attention to himself, rather pointing people to the simple presentation of the truth of the gospel in word and deed. This book is effective in unmasking our own cultural idols of wealth, power, and comfort. In this book, we see some gospel paradoxes. In Christ, we are comforted in affliction, rich in poverty, 
and strong in weakness. Gospel comparisons also provide a much-needed encouragement. God's promises are more permanent than our momentary trials, and our future life is more certain than our present circumstances. We can boast in our suffering knowing that God uses it as a crucible to produce humility and true strength. We can reconcile because we have been undeservedly accepted and restored in Christ. We can give generously because we have received the self-giving love of Jesus. 2 Corinthians provides documentary evidence that the gospel works. By the grace of God, over time, the gospel is worked out in our hearts so that we will recognize the deep implications of the gospel in every dimension of life. As you encounter God's word, you can trust that the Holy Spirit is operating in the moment to transform your heart and to reorganize your life around the promises of God which find their yes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I'd encourage you to spend some time the next couple weeks. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5, but I want you to read through the whole book of 2 Corinthians. There are only 13 chapters. Mind deeply into the Word of God and let it dwell richly in your heart and mind, and you will not regret it. So the next two weeks, we're going to be zeroing in on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. So if you have your Bibles with me, we're going to focus on 11 through 15 this morning. Follow along, otherwise we have words on the screen as well. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For we are beside ourselves. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Paul starts this paragraph by saying, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Some of you guys might hear this this morning and say, Isn't that uh, kind of a negative, mean way of looking at things? Should we really fear God? If you would take your Bible and ask yourself that question, What does the Bible say about fearing God? Here's what you would come across. Deuteronomy chapter 6, when Moses is telling the people how they should train their children, he says, be sure to teach them to fear the Lord. And then you find Moses, Moses before the end of his life in Deuteronomy 31, one of his last speeches, he says to all the children of Israel, remember it will go well for you if you fear the Lord. Solomon, wisest man to ever live, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But I think one of the biggest pictures, most in-your-face pictures of the fear of the Lord is in Isaiah chapter 6. So I want to read the first few verses to you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. 
Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook. The voice of him who called in the house was filled with smoke. And I said, prophet Isaiah, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt taken away and your sin atoned for. What a beautiful picture of the fear of the Lord and the holiness of God. You're thinking, well, that's in the Old Testament. I'm so glad we're living in the New Testament, so I don't have to worry about that. Jesus talked about fearing God in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, referring to God. The reason we are so fearful of human beings is because we aren't adequately afraid of God and his awesome majesty. The apostles talk about fearing Christ. The writer of Hebrews references God as a consuming fire. And we should approach him with awe and reverence. That's Hebrews 12. It's not just an Old Testament concept. It's a Christian concept. And for believers, it's not that we're running from him or scared of him in the sense of not wanting to be around him. We love him. We adore him. We worship him. We give him his honor, respect, and reverence. Throughout the scriptures, we see this concept of fearing God. Now what Paul shows us in verses 11, 12, and 13 are three implications of fearing God. If we fear the Lord, what does our life look like? The first one is this. We tell others about Christ. We tell others about Christ. We fear Christ so that we tell others about him. Look how he puts it. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So the apostle is saying, I do this out of fear of the Lord, not of fear of you. Now there are two ways we can look at this. He views this fear as God's judgment, as we see in verse 10, if you look at that. And this is what it says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we fear the Lord in his judgment. We proclaim his gospel from here to the ends of the earth, so that others may escape the judgment just as we have. But there is a second way in which we evangelize and tell others about Jesus out of the fear of the Lord, because the Lord has commanded us to. And we do this, we do what he says out of reverence, esteem, respect, honor, and fear of his holy majesty. So we tell others about Christ because of our fear of the Lord. Now, we're going back to Isaiah 6. If you look at the end of chapter 6, we see a prime example of this. You see that the Lord sends Isaiah on an impossible mission. 
says, I'm going to send you on a mission to go and tell people who keep on hearing but don't understand. How frustrating would that be? To people who keep on seeing but can't perceive until their hearts are so calloused that they dig their heels in and they won't believe. Preach until that happens, Isaiah. And Isaiah says, for how long? And the Lord says, until I've devastated the city, until I've brought my judgment on it. How'd you like that commission? Hey, go to a place that will get angry about what you say until it implodes. <laughs> Who would want to do that, right? Isaiah didn't want to do that, but why did he do that? The first part of that passage that we read, the fear of the Lord. We looked at it and we saw that. Because he saw the Lord high and lifted up in the fearsome presence of God. The holiness of God and the weightiness of his majesty seems to rest very lightly in my life and on the church today. We are to be motivated. Our mission to the world, to the surrounding communities, is to be moved and compelled by the infinite power and fearsomeness of our God. So we see in verses 11, 12, and 13, when we are compelled by God, we are people. Notice how the Apostle Paul puts it. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So he's saying, you're saying these other people are apostles. You're taking pride in their outward appearance. I'm telling you that these are the things of the heart which make the message credible. You should be boasting about the things of the heart rather than getting a Cadillac, money, comfort, fancy house, great job, great family. And we see this in the selection of a king to replace Saul in the life of David when the poor and lowly shepherd boy is chosen. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. This is so crucial for us to understand today. It's not about outward appearance or performance. It's about having a new heart. A heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. A heart that treasures and loves and worships Christ. It is your heart that God wants. Thirdly, we see in verse 13, compelled by the fear of God, not only compels us to tell others about him, and compels us to please him rather than people, but it compels us to treasure Christ even if we're viewed as a crazy Christian. Verse 13, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So the word beside ourselves may be translated in your Bible, out of your mind. It can mean being a little loco or insane or crazy. We see this word used in Jesus' life when he was teaching and performing miracles. His family thought he was out of his mind. They tried to rescue him. Paul's response reveals his deepest commitment. If there were any sense in which he was out of his mind, it was not because he was not an honorable apostle. It was for the sake of God. Paul had fully committed himself to God's service, even to the point where he seemed to many people to have lost his mind. 
And if you were actually in his right mind, it was for the Corinthians. Paul had two motivations. A love for God and a love for his neighbor. These dual motivations made him look insane at times. Though in reality, he was quite sane. So for us as believers, this means that there will be people in our life who think we're crazy, think we're nuts. They think that we're crazy, that we believe in a God who created the universe, who created all things. They may think we're crazy that we're sinful people who need to be saved. They may think we're crazy for trusting in Christ's righteousness rather than our own. They may think we're crazy for going to church every Sunday morning, being in a small group, hanging out with church people. People around us will think that treasuring Christ is foolish, crazy, and nonsense. And are we willing to be okay with that? Now lastly, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Not only are we compelled by the fear of God, we are also compelled by the love of Christ. Now the Apostle Paul doesn't just show us the implications, but he shows us the dynamics of how the love of Christ moves us. There are three steps to this. The first one is that Christ died for us. We are moved by the love of Christ because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. Louis Malky died in the fire trying to save property. It's a sofa place. Jesus died under the fire of God's wrath to save a people for himself. Even if Louis Malky had saved someone, the basketball players could only admire him because he saved someone else. But in our case, friends, we were the ones who were saved. He took the fire of God's wrath to set us free from that fire. He's the one who saved us. We're the ones who have been rescued. He died for us. He didn't just die to show how much God loved the world in principle. He died personally. Friends, it was very painful for him. We see that in the garden, asking if the cup of suffering would be removed. Enduring the wrath of God for the sins of those he saved, he rescued the team himself with his own life and death. We're moved by this, always. This compels us, this propels us forward in our lives. And the all in this passage, just a little side note here, does not mean that everyone is saved. It's not teaching universalism. Rather, it is referencing all of those who are in Christ, a people for God's own possession, all kinds of people, but all not, not all people everywhere for all time. But notice the second phrase, that Christ died for all. Does it say that so that we can live? No, it doesn't say that. He says, but Christ died for all, therefore all have died. Now, what does this mean? Well, he certainly means that we die to sin. The bondage of sin is broken. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 6. But here it seems that he is specifically saying that we die to ourselves. Because the Apostle Paul, when he was bragging about the cross of Christ in Galatians chapter 6, he says that I may boast 
never boast about anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That is that the bondage between me and the world has been broken. That I have noticed by the death of Jesus Christ taking place in my own life, the allurement of the broken systems, my old desires, the broken cisterns that don't hold water that the world has to offer is gone. That I no longer aspire to be the biggest name in the city. I no longer aspire to be the wealthiest person on my block. I no longer aspire for everyone to like me. That is broken. Christ died for all, therefore all have died. Died to themselves. If we are to enjoy everything that a life in Christ has to offer, which is treasuring him supremely, we must get rid of the things that are keeping him out of our lives. The broken cisterns that we go to that hold no water. We need to turn to the living waters that are found in Christ. So Paul says, first of all, that Christ died a sacrificial death for us. Secondly, we died. And thirdly, notice verse 15, and he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He died for us, we died to ourselves, and now we live for him. Do you see the logic of it? The Apostle Paul is compelled, constrained, and moved by the love of Jesus Christ because he died for me and he's allowed me to die to myself and all those selfish and self-destructive patterns so that I might live for him. We probably see the best example of this. This may be familiar to to you in Mark chapter 14. When Mary of Bethany, who was a single woman and whose father had deceased, saw Jesus come into the house of Simon the leper. When she sees him come in, she just loves him. She doesn't know what you know. She doesn't know about the substitutionary atonement that Jesus is going to die on the cross soon. She knows she's greatly loved by him, and so when she sees him, she wants to love him too. She's motivated by the love of Christ. You remember the story. He sits down at the table. She takes something that is very precious to her. Scholars tell us that this flask of Pirnard, which is very, very, very expensive ointment, was probably what her father gave her in his will so that she could be married and have a dowry to give the man that would marry her. So it was her future dreams of being married, having protection, which was a big deal, especially for women in that culture. Her dream of intimacy, her dream of of success, and it was probably hanging around her neck because it was so valuable to her. Her prized, most prized possession. No question about it. When Jesus came into the room for that meal, there was only one thing to do, and it was to take that flask and break it. And take that ointment and pour it out over the Lord Jesus Christ and wipe his feet with her hair. When the apostles saw this, they said, how irresponsible. Just one more poor person we're going to have to take care of. She's given up her whole estate. Said, what a waste. This could have been given to the poor, sold and given to the poor at least. You remember what Jesus said? He said, leave her alone. 
The poor you will always have with you, but you'll only have me for a little while. And he said this, she has done something beautiful for me. Something beautiful. This is what it means to be moved by the love of Christ, to treasure Christ above all else. Then you'll notice the end of verse 15 ends with this. For him who for their sake died and was raised. Now I want you to use your imagination with me a little bit to think about the meaning of that. When Louis Malky died in that fire and he promised to take his team to the championship and win it, of course they had taken those medals and put, put them at his grave. Louis Malky can't receive them, though. He's dead. But friends, will you notice something important in this text? The one who is moving us with his fearsome holiness, the one who is moving us with his infinite grace and love, he is alive. Louis Malky could take no delight in those honors left at his graveside because he is gone. He is not there. But friends, when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was put in the tomb, he came out three days later. And he was enthroned at the right hand of God and he is moving amongst his people by his great fearsome character and his holy grace. He's moving us and as he sees us and the motives of our hearts, he takes great delight because he's here and he's alive. And we are living for someone who is very presently taking great delight in the lives of his people. We are not only working on our words and deeds by the grace of God, but we're being transformed from the inside out. And our thoughts, our motives, and intentions of our hearts, and he sees this and he's pleased with it. The Apostle Paul says he lives before his face. He's the one who died for me. He's the one that was raised to life, and he's the one for whom I am living. So I have to ask you this morning, for whom are you living? What is holding you back from treasuring Christ in your life? Pray that God would transform your heart, give you a new heart to treasure him supremely, making him Lord of all, laying everything you have and are at his feet. Are you ready to break the flask and pour out the ointment? Are you ready to trust in the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to save you? Is the Spirit leading you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ this morning? Are you ready to love Jesus as he is, a holy and gracious Savior? The Christian life is not only an outward expression of obedience to Jesus, but an inward worshiping and loving and treasuring the life that is found in Jesus Christ. And may we, as we leave here this morning, be compelled by the fear of Christ and by the love of Christ to treasure Christ and share the treasure with those around us. Amen?